psychosis was like being on a never-ending acid trip that had gone bad and wouldn't stop. It was like being propelled into another dimension. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. I am incredibly excited today. We have Sam Miltich on the line. Sam is a jazz guitarist and a mental health advocate. Sam, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, Sam, I'm really excited. I know, I think it was just about a month ago, I saw that you were a keynote speaker at Temple Israel's, I think it was their 19th annual mental health conference, and, and you were a keynote speaker there. And unfortunately, I couldn't get there that day, but that was how I first learned about you. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that was in October we did that, and... Um... Yeah, I think it was Sharon Goldetsky got in touch with me and uh, wanted me to uh, do some speaking. And uh, I have a program that I call The Improvised Life um, that I have been putting on. And so I did my, I have a couple different versions. I have a two set long version and an hour long version. And I uh, I did the solo man uh, version of that uh, performance for Temple Israel. So That's incredible. And, and my understanding is you play your music and tell your story kind of throughout that entire program. Is that right? Yeah, I I have a narrative that I wrote, and uh, kind of that program, uh, how it came into existence was, uh, uh, well, really, I mean, it goes back to when I was first diagnosed with um, uh, mental illness, uh, which was when I was 22 years old, and uh, see, I'm 34, so that's 12 years ago, and uh, I was really enamored uh, with the music of Thelonious Monk and became quite enamored with his life and life story and uh, watched a documentary that Clint Eastwood uh, put out in uh, the 1980s, right after Monk had passed away. And so initially I wanted to do this. Uh, I became, I, I kind of loved his life story and I just absolutely loved his music. It was like the soundtrack to that era of my of my life. And, um, you know, in the film, they talked about mental, uh, you know, Thelonious' struggles with mental illness and, um, you know, his hospitalizations and what it was like for his family. And um, I just kind of latched on to public figures, I guess, uh, artists that were mentally ill as a source of inspiration for me. And Thelonious uh, certainly was one of those people. And it kind of kept my life afloat at the time. Uh, and then fast forward, I tried to, I wanted to put together a grant that was for the Minnesota State Arts Board. And I kind of, the first time I focused on Thelonious Monk and we got really close to being, uh, to getting the grant. And then I revised it. And from the notes that were kind of given, it was really clear that, uh, you know, I needed to tell more of my story. So the improvised life itself is a narrative that I wrote um, that, 
draws some parallels between uh, his journey and my own and not any way comparing myself musically uh, or talent wise to him. But uh, I drew this inspiration that uh, this man, Thelonious Monk, uh, uh, was living in the 1950s uh, with a major mental illness, which they're, I think now in his biography they're saying was bipolar, uh, living as uh, uh, African-American uh, during that time period in the 1950s and 60s, uh, raising a family successfully, being married and completely dedicated to his wife. And the point that I kind of make throughout the narrative is uh, despite the fact, or maybe in spite uh, of Thelonious's struggles with mental health, how little that defined who he was. And um, in, you know, in spite of having this, uh, this struggle in his life, he still was able to create some of the greatest art of the 20th century while successfully uh, raising a family and being dedicated to his wife, Nellie. And I went, man, you know, if this guy can pull this off, you know, under his circumstances, man, I can do my life. And, um, you know, so part of the music is Thelonious Monk's compositions. Part of the music are my compositions that I kind of based off of Monk's compositional style. And then I weave the narrative uh, amongst that. And uh, I talk about the creative process and how helpful that was for me. And invariably, they're always, it always turns into a question and answer segment at the end of the program as well. So um, that's what the program was, you know, or right. is. It yeah. still exists. That is really cool. And, and you're pretty much lifting him up, too, and speaking and sharing his story as a part of yours, too. That is really cool how you do it. Um, again, unfortunately, I couldn't get there, but I do also live in Minnesota, as you do, so I definitely hope to see you touring. My sister was at that conference and said you were phenomenal. Ah, so um, so I'm excited to have you on uh, and talk yeah. more, more to you about your music and your mental illness. So you already mentioned uh, you were not diagnosed until age 22, and yeah. you you were growing up in northern Minnesota, right near Grand Rapids. Is that right? Yep, yep, that's right. I I grew up uh, uh, in a very rural setting. I grew up uh, northeast of Grand Rapids on a little lake called Clearwater Lake, uh, on uh, what what was a little tiny uh, gravel road where they had to bring in power before my my dad built the house. There was even no power at the end of the road where he built. So, um, oh my goodness. And, yeah, I mean it was uh, you know I was. Uh, we had animals and we hunted and fished and it was a very rural life uh, where I grew up. So. Probably the the kind of town too where everybody knows everybody's business. I'm guessing. Well, yeah, I would say so. I mean, as uh, just like any town of that size, you right. know, it was uh, when I was a kid. I think it was seven thousand people were in Grand Rapids, so not a gigantic town by any stretch. Um, uh, so yeah, you know, it was it was real. Um, Northern Minnesota living, I would say. Yeah, right. Do you have siblings? Did who were you growing up with in the household? Yeah. Um. So my parents, uh, both are still alive, and um, I there were four siblings in my family. I, uh, I had I have a brother and sister who to me are just brother and sister, but they're uh, half brother and sister. Um. And uh, then me and my sister, and so there's kind of an age gap. Um. My let's see, I think. My sister, when when my little sister was born, my older sister was 17. So there's a big gap uh, right. between us. 
so yeah, my, my brother and sister were born in 71 and 73. And then Matia, my younger sister and I were in uh, 85 and 88. And um, so, you know, I grew up, it was interesting because I kind of was, I grew up with the big kids before Matia came. And then uh, when Matia came on the scene, my little sister, then my older sister kind of moved out and it was another little nucleus uh, that existed. And, um, uh, both of my sisters are still living. And, um, I lost my brother when, uh, I was, um, I guess I was 10 years old, almost 11 in 1996. My, my brother passed away. Oh my goodness. I'm sorry to hear that. How did your brother die? He, uh, had what's called sudden athlete death, uh, and he had a cardiomyopathy. So he, uh, was playing basketball and collapsed on the court. And, um, it was, um, over a series of days, he, it was clear that he wasn't going to make it. So, um, yeah, that was a pretty big blow to our, well, it was a very big blow to our family. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, yeah, that must've been shocking to your family. That's the kind of incident, you know, you hear it in the news sometimes athletes, uh, dying on the sidelines and such, but it's one that you just never think would actually hit your family. Well, no. And, uh, you know, um, particularly shocking when it's um uh your sibling who seems uh completely invincible with uh how incredibly athletic he was it is something you you would have never imagined happening to a guy like this he was so healthy so you said you were 10 at the time did you get any kind of therapy at the time to work through that you and your other siblings no i mean that kind of stuff it, it, I don't think that was even part of the sort of the, the collective lexicon back in those days. Right. Um, you know, I, I don't even think I knew what a therapist was until I was, you know, later in my teenage years. So. Right. Right. And so your family just kind of plugged along as, as much as you could. Yeah, we did the best we could. I think in some regards, it really brought us together as a family and, uh, we became, we were always a very close family and, uh, I think it brought us even closer together. We were, we were even more tight knit and, um, you know, uh, I, I know it certainly strengthened my relationship between me and my dad, who's, who was really one of my very best friends. Right. That's awesome. And so any kind of hints of mental health struggles for you, uh, growing up? Yeah, it, it basically started after my brother passed away. Um, it, um, mm. my ability to cope with that kind of a loss, uh, in adolescence was really challenging for me. I, by the time I had reached, I was in fifth grade, by the time I had reached sixth grade, I became very, very cynical, very, very jaded and upset about the world. And, uh, there was a series of events that happened, uh, 96, uh, February 5th. 15th, my brother passed away. And then two years almost to the day, um, my dad's mother passed away, my grandmother. And then six months after that, uh, our family home burned to the ground. Oh my um, goodness. So there was a series of really sort of cataclysmic events that happened um, uh, at a fairly tender age. And um, I, I attribute those kind of traumatic events to be the environmental triggers or environmental factors that set the wheels in motion for those of us who are predisposed to mental illness, because someone may be genetically predisposed to it. Um, but, uh, the, the circumstances, uh, don't create the environment for, you know, psychosis or depression to occur. 
And uh, for me, uh, my personal feeling is uh, those events uh, started the train rolling down the track, so to speak. Right. Well, it would make a lot of sense, right? I mean, those are some pretty significant traumatic situations that you went through. Looking back, do you have actual symptoms that you could say, oh, yeah, you know, like after the death, this is, I, I wasn't sleeping yeah. or. Yeah. I, I, I know I, you mentioned being becoming cynical and such, but anything else? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think by the time I had come into my teenage years, I can look back now and see events. Well, I mean, I, I certainly medicated at a fairly young age with chemicals. Uh, I don't consider myself an addict, but uh, um, I, I would say in those kind of formative years, I definitely medicated with um, with alcohol and uh, marijuana. And um, that's a pretty young age to be uh, getting involved in that kind of stuff, you know, at 12 years old or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, trying to numb. Uh, and it was it was very clearly I was trying to numb the pain of what was going on. Um, and, uh, beyond that, uh, I remember events where I started to slip into psychosis. I, I look back at it now and I can say, yeah, pacing in the front lawn, talking to yourself is probably a sign that something's wrong. And, you know, that, that kind of stuff happened. And I started to have pretty, um, uh, strange existential conversations with the cosmos um, uh, and really dealing with sort of what I would consider a great deal of anger at, you know, I realized I must believe in some kind of higher power because you couldn't be mad at something that you didn't feel was there. <laughs> right. um, and, and so um, whether you call that mental illness or uh, dark night of the soul, whatever, um, those things were going on at that age. Um, and it was pretty big yo-yo effects, pretty big ups and uh, pretty big downs. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily categorize it as manic. I'm not, uh, I'm not bipolar. I'm not diagnosed that way. But, um, you know, things would be going well for a while, and then there would be a crash, you know. And there were all these little small crashes before the big one. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think of them as as uh, like a mental health crash. It, it was just like a thing that happened, you know. Did anybody uh, else kind of have an inkling or did they uh, question it? Maybe teachers, I, educators, or your your family? I don't know if people had enough awareness at that time about what that was. And I think to some extent people go, well, you know, there's these phases that young people go through, you know, et cetera. Right. Um, and uh, maybe it's that. I did see a therapist for a, a little bit of time, but um, I don't think anyone really had the full scope of what was going on because it was like, well, you know, Sammy's struggling, but, you know, he'd go out for a walk in the woods and then he'd, he'd really be pretty okay. And uh, what happened at 22 was uh, I could not write the ship. All the techniques, all the things that I would do to sort of get myself back on track didn't work anymore. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't go, you know, I'd go for a walk and whatever, what, what was happening, it wasn't going away and it was getting worse. And, uh, it led to a, a really severe psychotic break at 22, which, uh, is quite frankly, uh, sort of the classic, uh, time period of when a, a male person 
will experience psychosis and those symptoms of schizophrenia will show up. Right. Yeah, that's that's pretty much right on the uh, typical average, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, it was such a bizarre and otherworldly experience. I really didn't understand what was happening to me. And I had no way of getting any objective uh, vantage point to, to examine it, to try and figure it out. And um, all that said, there was no way for me to understand that that what I was experiencing, even though it seemed completely strange and otherworldly to me, fall right into the diagnostic criteria for for schizophrenia and for psychosis. Right. To me, it seemed impossible. You know, when, when I got the diagnosis and they said, well, these are the symptoms, I went, oh my God, you know, it, it lines right up. And and then I, I thought this was such a strange experience that I, I must be the only person on earth that's ever had this thing occur. But no, geez, you know, there's all kinds of people that are diagnosed with schizophrenia. Because, you know, the way I describe psychosis was it was like being on a never-ending acid trip that had gone bad and wouldn't stop. Um, and it, it's psychosis for me is kind of waking nightmare land. Are you able to share any kind of, uh, details of what that was like for you? Yeah. For me, it has, uh, a lot to do with thought process, thought processing. Uh, and I'm diagnosed now with paranoid schizophrenia. Um, and the first things I remember noticing was it was, I think it was in February. February is a bad time for our family um, for a number of reasons. But I remember driving around on these rural county roads in northern Minnesota and feeling like the sun, and it was nighttime, and I had this feeling that the sun had set and it would never rise again. Uh, that I would be living in this, um, it felt like a bizarre uh, dream world. That was like a, a waking nightmare. And um, uh, so that's one example. I had really uh, sort of extreme religious delusions. Um, so, for instance, uh, when this happened when I was 22, I had moved to the Twin Cities. And it was, uh, I was living in St. Paul with my now wife. And uh, uh, this was back when the 35 Bridge had collapsed. Okay. And yeah. uh, and. I was convinced, I had this sort of butterfly spiderweb theory that everything that I touched would get destroyed because I had the belief that I was the Antichrist and that anything that had any connection to me was caused by my existence, right? So I, I was convinced that because I had moved to St. Paul, that's why the bridge collapsed. So I felt that I was responsible for this destruction and horror. Um, and I came to this conclusion, and this is something that I think that's uh, worthy of conversation because, you know, suicide is always an issue with mental health. Um, and I felt suicidal not because I wanted to kill myself because I wanted the pain to stop, but I thought that I needed to end my life for, like, the salvation of humanity. And uh, I was convinced, I thought the CIA was coming for me. So I would lock myself in a closet in my apartment because I was like, well, I'm going to solitary confinement and I, I have to get used to what that would be like. So I would lock myself in a closet wow. and sit in there for, for two hours. Um, uh, really pretty out there, extreme stuff. Um, and I'm guessing uh, like, I don't know if you're able to even share this with the listeners, but when you talk about 
everything that you have touched and stuff being destroyed because you're the Antichrist. Like, on I don't know how to describe it, but on one sense it's like, oh, well, that's a really weird thought. But those thoughts were like, I'm guessing, pervasive and really deep-rooted and very, very scary, right? They were very scary. They were very real. And it wasn't even a... I don't know how to put this into words. It wasn't a thought. It was a, it was a state of existence. I was in an, I was in another, it was like being propelled into another dimension. Um, and I had no way of seeing outside of that dimension. And no matter how much, uh, I consider myself a fairly intelligent guy. And I think this is something that can happen actually is, um, I was smart enough to argue with these people about why they were wrong and why I was right. And I had all these reasons, this reasoning for why this was happening. You know, and I remember like my wife brought me to a therapist or she, she was my girlfriend then my now wife. And it was like, something was clearly not going well. And this therapist said, I have to, I have to put this guy in the hospital. And I just about ran out the door, literally ran out the door. And uh, she said, well, just hold on. She said, we have a family cabin up north because she grew up in Grand Rapids as well. Um, We actually met in the Twin Cities. We didn't know each other in Grand Rapids. But um, she said, "Um, let me just take him home and um, we'll go to this family cabin and we'll just stay there and and just try and get some rest and get some calm. And so I did that. And, you know, like I have these memories of uh, like a couple of things, like there were four wheelers going by on these logging roads. And I was like, that's the CIA. They're here. They're, they're coming to get me. They're going to take me away. And so I, you know, I felt like running away. Um, so that was a pretty uh, strange experience. And then I also had this experience of like, I felt like because we didn't take the garbage out that I would, that law enforcement would come after me, you know? So, you know, it was like deeply, deeply paranoid. Wow. How scary that must've been. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, um, the way I would, I mean, people have to recognize when people are in psychosis, it's fear. People are afraid. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that people are necessarily dangerous and really what they need is uh, they need love and compassion and people need to recognize that they're afraid and they need to be comforted. And um, there needs to be a way, a method for calming those people and arguing with them about their reality is not going to do that. Right. You can't argue someone out of their reality because it's as what they're experiencing is as real as, you know, what we're doing right now. You know, I mean, all of us live in these subjective realities. So um, it was it was very, very severe. Uh, it was very, very scary. And, uh, uh, you know, when I, I, I honestly look back to those days and what happened, you know, I feel incredibly fortunate to be where I am today because there's a lot of people uh, that have been in my position that don't have the kind of life that I have. Right. Right. So can you uh, explain to us, it it certainly does not sound like this psychosis came about one day, like you woke up and all of a sudden you were super paranoid. Or was it like that? Well, it wasn't just one day. It was a series of days, months, 
um, you know, days, weeks, months, probably beginning from uh, March of that year into June uh, when stuff started to come off the rails. I, I can look back that a year before that that happened, I had had psychosis, but I didn't really know what was happening. But between March and June of that year that I was 22, and it, it kind of started with like um, crying, but not knowing why I was just like just breaking into tears and weeping. And uh, I had moved to the Twin Cities and I had been living up north, basically uh, kind of using my parents as sort of a um, their home as a, a jumping off point for when I would go touring. And I moved to the Twin Cities full time to be with my wife. And I also uh, had started doing some community college courses. So and I was playing music, too. So I was under really a tremendous amount of stress uh, when this all happened. Right. And and so by the time June had rolled around, I was pretty much gone. You know, I was I was in another I was in another world that the rest of the world was not in. Right. And then how long did this first psychosis last? Probably at least six months before I really could grasp reality again. Wow. And none of that entailed hospitalizations and medication or therapy uh, those six months? Yeah, it, it, it did. By It was pretty clear by the end of the summer that I needed to go home. I needed to be with my parents. And my uh, wife and I, uh, my she was my girlfriend at the time, had talked about wanting to move north. So we had planned to move north, She, but I came first and then she came after. And uh, honestly, it's such a traumatic time. It's kind of hard to remember all the details of, uh, you know, the ins and outs of, uh, uh, of what took place. Right. Um, and I'm sure the timing of it all and such. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I did get into a counseling center and that's when I was diagnosed with depression with psychotic features. And I was put on different antidepressants at the time and they did not work. It, 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 it did not help. Uh, you know, I was put on Zoloft, I think, and then I was put on Wellbutrin, which made me sick. Um, Zoloft did not help. And um, so I was eventually, somewhere in that time period, I was put into a PHP, which is a partial hospitalization program. So I was never inpatient, and I was never committed, um, because I, I was never at that point where it was like he's a, a severe danger to himself or others. Um, but I was put in a partial hospitalization program, which I think was two weeks long, and I was diagnosed with um, a schizoaffective disorder at that time. Okay, and, and just so just so people know, partial hospitalization program is I typically, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but you were going into a program during the day, maybe nine to three or something, and then going yes. home for the evenings, and then back again That's in right. the morning. Right. That's right. Okay, and, and so that they're was, working uh, on medication and and different educational pieces and and visits yep. with the docs and so forth. Yep, yep. So you're kind of running the gamut of getting medications worked out, doing therapy sessions, um, and uh, then doing you know group sessions too. Gosh, it's funny because now I haven't thought about this stuff in a long time, and those memories come back. And that was not; those were not fun times. That was hard stuff, and. Somewhere along the line, I was put on antipsychotics. I was put on Risperdal, which was uh, not, which was uh, not the right drug for me. I, it made me really sick and really sedated. And then eventually, I was put on 
Seroquel. And so now I take Seroquel and I take Lamictal, uh, which is a mood stabilizer. So some years down the line, um, you know, you have to, to be diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. You have to have symptoms over uh, a period of time before they can diagnose you with that. And I had enough ongoing symptoms that my diagnosis was switched. So, so, um, so at one point you were diagnosed, you said, maybe after the PHP with uh, schizoaffective disorder. Yeah, it was in PHP that they gave me that um, okay. diagnosis. Which, and my understanding, and I might be wrong about this, is that that's uh, schizophrenia along with a mood disorder of either mania or depression. Yep, that's okay. right. And I was, you know, like I said, initially diagnosed with depression with psychotic features. And so now, you know, what I say jokingly, because uh, I don't put a lot of stock into diagnosis itself, it's what what are the symptoms and how and how do we treat them? Yeah. And um, I just say that I'm I like to joke. <laughs> I call myself a moody schizophrenic. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I, I I think what you say makes a lot of sense, right? Let's treat the symptoms because some of those um, diagnoses just I mean some overlap and some are, seem so similar, and let's just find the right medication and the right treatment uh, to deal with the symptoms yeah yeah and uh but you know it is interesting because for instance you know i know other people with bipolar and i've i've read about it and i go yeah no i don't have that <laughs> i i definitely you know and then i look at schizophrenia and i go yeah yeah that would definitely be the right one <laughs> so, yeah but how uh, about the difference between depression with psychotic features versus schizoaffective disorder which could be schizophrenia coupled with depression right Depression, right, exactly. That's why all that stuff is... Uh, gets a little complicated. Yeah, it gets a little complicated, and I think, um, you know, out of the gate, you know, I, I, what I like to say, I'm, I like to make a distinction that that I don't, I didn't necessarily think that I may have been depressed, but the the reason that I was depressed was because I knew that I was, that something was terribly wrong and I was going into psychosis. Right. So in a bizarre way, I think the depression itself was a circumstantial depression based around another mental health diagnosis itself. Yeah. Because anyone who has such a loss of self yeah. and identity, I don't know how you could not have circumstantial depression without having that. Oh, that right? makes that makes a lot of sense, right? Like you realize how paranoid you are. You realize you're going through something that's not normal. Like you said, you figured you were the only one in the world this was ever happening to. And well, it was so otherworldly, it so bizarre. Yeah, and thus it throws you into a, a depression. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah, you know, I felt this profound isolation because I knew that something about what I was experiencing was very, very different from all the other people around me, you right. know. And so after the partial hospitalization and they had diagnosed you with schizoaffective disorder, did you leave there with that diagnosis? And what was life like as you exited there? Did you go into any kind of step-down program or were you just right back towards home? Well... I, you know, now I'm trying to think back to those days, but yeah, so um, I'm really, really quizzing you here. <laughs> no, no, it's good. Um, I think what I wound up doing is I continued follow up therapy sessions uh, at Range Mental Health in Hibbing, and yeah, Northern Minnesota, uh, did, where you were living. 
Uh, I was living in Grand Rapids at the time, and I was, but I was g- receiving treatment through Range Mental Health in Hibbing, Minnesota, because okay. um, that's where the PHP program was. Right. Um, and so I did therapy visits. I remember doing those, and uh, I did follow up medication visits as well. And you were trying to kind of wrap your head around this whole new diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, it was. Um, yeah, I was, you know, I was trying to figure out how, how do I cope and how do I live my life? And, you know, my music career kind of, uh, tanked, you know, at that point, you know, and it was like, how do I, how do I put the pieces back together here? You know, how do I, how do I assemble a life? Well, and, which by um, the way, we didn't even mention, okay, because didn't your career take a big, um, strong jump for the positive when you were around 21, just prior to your yeah. diagnosis. Yeah. When and I and you were done, touring internationally, correct? Yes, um, that's right. And I think a lot of that pressure kind of contributed to that experience, frankly. Right. Um, when I was 18 years old, uh, there was a, um, uh, uh, I was playing a gig in Duluth and a reporter from Minnesota public radio heard me playing. And uh, he said, God, what the heck is this 18-year-old guy who is playing like Django Reinhardt who came from the woods of northern Minnesota? How did this happen, you know? And um, so, they, yeah, they wound up uh, – this guy did a report on me on Minnesota Public Radio, which then was sold to National Public Radio. And uh, it was featured, featured on Weekend Edition, and my career just skyrocketed. <laughs> that is so cool. That, you said you were got, 18? I was 18. I got tons and tons of gigs. I wound up playing internationally. I went to uh, the Netherlands and Germany to play in a group called the Robin Nolan Trio. And um, I, uh, uh, in that same time period, I toured with a group called the Hot Club of San Francisco. And then I was leading my own band, the Clearwater Hot Club, and um, wound up doing a tour to Japan. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was. And while like, it. While it all sounds phenomenal, like you said, I, I can't imagine the pressure you were under as a teen. Well, it it was it it was a, a very incredible culture shock to come from this rural existence in right. in, in northern Minnesota to playing on a uh, stage at Lincoln Center or to be <laughs> playing in in the Ginza district of Tokyo, right? right. Uh, or playing at uh, God, where were we? Where, uh, you know, playing in, in San Francisco, you know, and I, I played with David Grisman and this, this was all just, uh, I think it was a lot for me to, to grapple with. Oh, for sure. And then, uh, age 22 comes around and you hit this, the schizophrenia, the psychosis and the schizophrenia diagnosis, like you talked about partial hospitalization. And now I'm just bringing you back to the point where you said you were talking about this career that you had just you know, ramped up so beautifully, just tanked. Yeah, well, and, uh, you know, the career, um, I I look at it now, and, you know, I had some fallings out with musicians, which is not a a rare occurrence in any regards in the music business, but I can see that the mental health contributing to that overall sort of decline in my career and what happened, you know, uh, so it, you know, it was a, it was a, a, a major kind of a whipsaw effect. Right. And did you try to jump right back into your music after the partial hospitalization program? You know, I continued to play, but I was not like touring nationally uh-huh. like I 
and um, I can't remember actually. Yeah. Did you feel like your music was really negatively impacted? You know, I think it. What I would say is when I was not well, uh, mentally speaking, that my ability to be creative was pretty hampered by the fact that I was just trying to survive as a human. So, yeah, I would say it had a negative effect on it because there's always this sort of, um, oh, well, you know, musicians there, uh, you know, maybe it's the maybe it's the, the mental illness that creates the art. And my my response to that is no. My experience is the mental illness hampered the art. Uh, the creative aspect of the human soul uh, is uh, not created by the mental illness, but a response to it as a form of self-healing. Oh, right. So is there a time period in there where you think that the schizophrenia did have a positive impact on your music through, like you said, kind of the re- the recovery of it? Well, I think the music was my way of trying to write the ship, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, you know, music was the antidote to the symptoms, you know, and, uh, uh, and I think, you know, the music helped in the healing process. So the music wasn't created by the mental illness, but it was the music that helped, uh, treat the mental illness. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So this was age 22 Right. And yeah. then, then you, you got medicated and were you dealing with different bits and pieces of psychoses along the way now? Or were you? Yeah. Uh, well, what I would say is I've had two major psychotic events. Uh, I had one uh, when I was 22 and I had another one when I was 30. And um, they, they came from different sources, but they were both psychotic events related to schizophrenia is what I would say. And... Um, in between, I had a lot of stability and I had a lot of happiness and I played a lot of really fun gigs and I really enjoyed the music and uh, some of the best things of my life occurred. You know, I, was, I got married um, to the woman I love. I, I had children and uh, having little children was one of the very best things that ever happened in my life. I loved uh, because I, you know, I was playing gigs at night. I could be home during the day. And I loved taking care of my boys. It was having kids was, I I remember people saying, you know, we were concerned that you were going to have kids and and what the pressure and the stress would do. And they said, man, it was just the opposite. It just locked you in and made you better. Did you Um, have any of those concerns yourself, wondering how it might impact your schizophrenia? I never did. I I just instinctively knew that it would be good for me. I instinctively knew it. For a very long time, I knew for a very long time I wanted to have kids. I've always loved kids. I'd love being with kids. Yeah. And um, I had always wanted to have grandchildren for my parents in, in the area where we live. And uh, it was like the most stabilizing aspect of my life. That's and so, awesome. Yeah. Do, do you 20- think your wife was concerned at all? Do you think she you know, had some uh, some concerns about you with? Um, having been diagnosed with schizophrenia and then being the one who was going to be home with them? You know, I don't think she did. I think we were both really honest about when we knew, uh, if we knew when, when symptoms were happening uh, and what to do. And uh, it was like, uh, we kind of like really said, yeah, we're not going to do the stigma thing. At least this is my take on it. Um, you'd have to ask her. Um, but it was like, yeah, it's an illness. And, you know, when you know, symptoms of an illness occur, you get help from outside people the same way you would if someone had the stomach flu, you know? Right. And 
um, we never bought into uh, the stigma that people with mental illness are dangerous. You know, right. we just did, we didn't do that. And, um, uh, and, and also just, just so you, just so you know, the, my asking the question really wasn't revolved around being dangerous or violent or anything to oh, that sure. effect, but I do understand how some people have those negative um, that negative stigma is out there. But my yeah. wondering was still just about, you know, if you go through a psychosis, if you have a, a situation similar to the first one you described, then what would happen if you were home? And those were my concerns. Right. But it's awesome you didn't. I did have those concerns for myself. It was after my, very soon after my first um, depressive bout where we had already had two kids and we decided to try to have a third and my wife got pregnant with twins and I was just, really like wondering if I had just made a huge mistake and you wow. know, I wasn't at all and it ended up being awesome and I love my kids dearly but I did definitely have some of those doubts and concerns like what if I go through this again and how will I handle it and how will it right. impact the kids well you know and people have asked that kind of a question and um you know, and people have said, you know, is there, do you get concerned about your children having mental illness? And my response is, you know what, I, if they, if that happens to them, well, then we've gone through it with me and we know all the better how to deal with it and how to survive it and how to live with it. And of course you hope it never does happen to your children. Um, but you know, it was like, well, gosh, what if your children have mental illness? And I thought to myself, you know, having a major mental illness is not the worst thing to befall humanity. And no. I'm hoping that you can live with it and live successfully and happily. And, and so, I think you said, like you said, you're a perfect role model for them and they have somebody to talk to about it. And, um, who is open about it. So all the better. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, if there's heart disease in the family, well, then sure you go, you know, well, what if the children have, you know, yeah. any other, any other ailment that, that comes with being a human being, Exactly. Uh, it, uh, you know, it's always this thing of like, well, mental illness is like the, the worst possible thing that could ever uh, befall someone or something. And, uh, it's like, well, no, it's like, uh, the point being is it's like any other illness yeah. uh, that we as humans deal with. And um, you, you learn to uh, to cope with it and you learn management skills and you take it a day at a time, just like anything else. Exactly. So you were telling us um, about some of these amazing things that happened in your life between the two episodes. Yeah. And then age 30, did you say, was your second episode? Yeah, and you know, it it came from a really different source. Um, kind of the way I was really triggered uh, by, and you know, that's like the the, the word everyone's using now is triggered. Oh, I guess triggered. But anyways, I was I maybe I'll say um, I had really adverse reactions to what I felt was perceived stigma, and how I reacted to those experiences of stigma and discrimination were not healthy and not positive. And I look back at that and I could have handled things differently. I also uh, went down on my medication because I, I had this thing in my head that schizophrenia was just something that happened in my young life. And 
it was something that I was going to overcome and I wasn't going to need medication the rest of my life. And so I just kept creeping down and down and down. And this combination of really intense resentment, I guess, and frustration and anger surrounding issues of stigma in combination with me going lower on meds, um, just it led to another psychosis, which lasted a year. Um, wow, and, that's a, a long time. Uh, yeah, it, and it was, but it was, it wasn't like the first one where it was just a tank and I was in the bottom and I, I couldn't get out. This was like ups and downs and ups and downs. And it was like, I'd sort of get better. And then something would throw me over the edge and then I would get worse. And then I would sort of come back and get better and get worse. And, you know, we kind of, I worked my way through it with therapy. Therapy really helped and, um, and medication as well. So, um, when you were weaning off of your meds, were you doing that in coordination with your doctor? Well, there, I, I don't want to name names. There was a, a professional who was not a meds provider who sort of quietly gave me advice that was not sound advice. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I so think I, I would tell anybody, you know, if you're going to wean off meds for, um, any mental illness, you'd certainly want to be in collaboration with your doctor and get guidelines. On I, that. And I was, you yeah. know, I was, I was following the advice of, um, you know, a mental health professional, but not a meds provider. Okay. You know, not, right. Uh, not a, a psychiatric nurse or a psych, uh, psychiatrist. Okay. And then and so that was not, not the right thing to do. Yeah. And then you also mentioned some of your reactions to some pieces of the stigma. I'm wondering, if you could describe what those, what that stigma was that came in, in your direction. And I'm also curious if you really believe, had you responded differently to what happened, would you have avoided a whole psychosis or, or maybe would it have just been a, a more manageable psychosis? Boy, that's a hard thing to say. Um, that's a hard one. That's a hard question to answer. Yeah. Um, it really is. Kind of the stigma that I felt was I, I I frequently felt like people wouldn't take me seriously, uh, that people would sort of dismiss me as, you know, Sam's the crazy one. Uh, and um, I, I had had experiences, uh, you know, I had I had struggled with uh, people talking when people would mention my medications, you know, and, they, and I, I would I'd say, you know, damn it, you know. Excuse my language. I'm sorry. Um, oh, no problem at all. I, you know, I'd say, you know, whose business is it to talk about my medications? You know, w would it be appropriate for me to talk about your diabetes, about your insulin? I'm, you know, this is my business, not yours, you know. Right. And I felt that people were kind of talking behind my back about these things or um, laying blame when I had struggles. And, you know, I internalized it and I resented it. And, uh, you know, whether, uh, how I reacted would have led to a less severe psychosis. It's hard for me to say, but what I can say is that, uh, psychologically speaking for anyone, I mean, mental health is a topic for all people because it's like physical health. We all have it. Yeah. Not everyone is uh, mentally ill, but everyone has mental health, but resentment and anger are, are, um, it's, it's a, as I say, it's a killer of the spirit, uh, and it leads nowhere good. Yeah. Um, I would completely agree. And so I think my reaction to those things uh, did lead to uh, just not a very good frame of mind. 
And uh, that's not going to help the situation when you're going down on your meds. Right. So this question might also be really difficult to answer. But you had mentioned that in a way it sounded like you stated that you thought people were talking about you behind your back as well. And given the fact that you were diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, do you think some of it was made up in your head or and just you beating yourself up when it wasn't really happening, you know, telling yourself this own your own negative narrative that you were making up essentially? Or do you think that that it really was happening? And again, I know that's Um, a challenging question. It is a challenging question. And I think it's a little bit chicken and egg kind of a scenario. And I think um, what I say with psychosis is that all psychosis starts with a grain of truth. Was someone looking at you? Well, yeah, they were looking at you. But can you infer what they were thinking? No, you can't. Um, So it all starts with some semblance of reality sort of becoming distorted. And it's like a distorted picture, you know, um, where you're not really seeing the true image. But, you know, the same fragments of light are there, right? So I, I think there is some of both, you know. And the most honest answer that I can say is uh, I do think people uh, – I, I think there was stigma that was happening that, that was involved. Uh, but my reaction to that was uh, disproportionate to what would be a healthy approach, Right. right? I mean, if if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the second psychosis involved a lot of ups and downs. Were there delusions at all or hallucinations or what were some of the significant types of uh, symptoms you had? Yeah, my my primary struggle as someone with schizophrenia has been around thought disorder and paranoia. But I have had hallucinations. When I was first sick, um, I, I did have some visual hallucinations, but they were um, like I remember waking up and seeing two men in the room. Like I thought there were two people in the room and it would take about two minutes. And then those like they looked like shadows, but they looked like people. They would they would disappear. Um, and I would see uh, cats inside of my room running around that weren't there. So I did have some visual hallucinations Then I had auditory hallucinations where I was hearing voices. And that was way more common than uh, the visual hallucinations. And, and were those voices that literally you were hearing in your head telling you something? Or were those voices yeah. like you thought somebody was in the kitchen next to you? Uh, thought like I, they were in the kitchen next to me, kind of okay. a voice, right. like a hallucination. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the business of um, being told that I was the Antichrist was one of those hallucinations. And then I would hear sometimes like... Uh, like a choir of angels singing when there, when there was none. Right. So it was the combination and the voices were always very condemning. You know, it was, it was always centered on how I was bad in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so throughout each psychosis, I had those events occurring. And, and at the time you have, you're believing that they're really saying it and these are real voices. Right. And, and do you try to tell them to stop or, how does that? How do you react to something like that? I can't. Well, even when it's first, when it when it's first happening, you don't know what the hell is happening. You know, I mean, you, you have no clue. But I, I actually kind of learned over time to talk back to the voices and to challenge them. Okay. Interestingly, and and, and um, found that helpful. Yeah, because I be uh, you know I finally got to the point where it was like, 
uh, I understood that I was having a hallucination. And I mean, I can distinctly remember walking up the hill, like uh, being in recovery, what, four or five years ago, and being like, well, I'm having a hallucination, but I can deal with this and I can go get my kids and I'm okay with it because I know it's a hallucination, you know, and, um, but I haven't had them for a while. I haven't had a hallucination. The last time I had a hallucination, I had a major life changing event, which led to depression, uh, this year. And it's what I would call situational or circumstantial depression. Um, but I was put on prednisone, which is a steroid. And, uh, that made me hallucinate like crazy. Uh, I was hearing um, music that was not there. Is that a known and, side effect of the medication? Yeah, it, uh, it is. It, okay. it, and it can happen to people who don't even have a, a uh, it can happen to people who don't even have a mental illness. So someone like me is really predisposed to it. Right. Um, so, um, you know, uh, that was not fun. That was a, a bad period. And you said you went into a depressive episode then? Yeah, I mean, this is where I can sort of speak to depression. Is uh, so this is a fairly new development for me. But uh, as of February sixteenth, twenty nineteen, uh, I woke up completely, profoundly deaf in my left ear. Um, I just woke up one. I woke up that morning in a hotel room before we were going to fly down to Florida for a family trip, and I had no hearing in my left ear. And um, just out of nowhere, the night before was out crying. of no, out of nowhere. Yep. And, um, wound up going to, uh, urgent care to get help the first day that it happened, wound up going to, uh, uh, an emergency room that evening. And I was sort of, uh, soft pedaled and, and told that I had fluid in my ear and to, you know, just wait. And, um, I wound up getting home from this trip a week later and I went to, uh, see a doctor at urgent care here because I was having I got was getting really sick. Um, ear problems will lead to vertigo and um, nausea and stuff. And I knew something was just really wrong. And uh, I went to an ENT in Duluth, and they're like, "Yeah, you're profoundly deaf in your left ear. You can't hear anything." And um, which, as a musician, yeah, must be incredibly traumatic. I would imagine it, your ears are really critical to to playing the music you play. It is. It, it was completely, completely devastating. Right. And. Uh, I tried to play a gig not knowing what had happened and I could not understand the music. It was just gone. And I I took my wife out into the parking lot. I said, Katie, I think I'm having a stroke. And she said, what? I said, I cannot hear. I can't understand what's happening. And, um, so it's, it's, I'm working close to a year since this has happened. And this has really been one of the worst years of my life. But, uh, because for about three months, I just was convinced my musical career was over. There was no possible way for me to do this. And I had these really wickedly bad symptoms called hyperacusis, which is like complete pain in your ear from any sound going in it. Uh, sound recruitment, which is like where the few existing nerves that I had in my ear were trying to pull the weight for the nerves that had been killed off. And it amplifies sound louder than it is. So things sound like four times louder than what they're supposed to. Wow. And then I had, I have, I still do I have severe tinnitus, uh, in that ear and it's not ringing, but it's, uh, like a whooshing, uh, white noise kind of a sound. And so this is all completely brand new and fresh. And I have, uh, 
fortunately reached out to uh, other people and other musicians who have suffered this. And uh, I've kind of learned to adapt and accommodate and um, uh, kind of uh, rewire the brain through, you know, this neuroplasticity of, um, you know, when there's a major injury sustained that the body finds new pathways, right? Yeah. The brain finds new neural pathways. And um, so this was just really, really devastating to me. And um, it's, it's, it's an ongoing battle. I'm still dealing with the after effects of the depression from that experience because it, you know, music is never going to sound the way it did. But what I have said to myself is if you have the expectation that it's going to sound the way it did, you're always going to be disappointed, right? You're always going to feel bad. But if you focus on these three things, if when you're playing, you don't have distortion sounds in your left ear, you know, this garbly nonsense, if you don't have any pain and you can conceive of all the musical parts with one ear, then that's a victory. And you need to focus instead of on the loss of what you can't hear, focus on the beauty of what you can hear and rewire your brain for a sense of gratitude. Um, and, Are you, so you're under the impression that your, your hearing is lost for good and it won't come back. Yeah, no, it won't come back. Not unless there's some kind of, I did undergo steroid treatment, which is what the prednisone was for. And I, 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 I did this nasty treatment where they stick a needle in through your eardrum and squirt uh, steroid juice into your ear. Wow which I would recommend not doing if you can help it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, that was uh, in hopes of salvaging what hearing I could get back. And they don't know what caused it, but they had Mayo had to determine a whole bunch of things that it's not, you know, I didn't have Lyme's disease. They did a CT or MRI and um, you know, I, I didn't have an acoustic neuroma, which is a benign, but serious tumor that's in the brain. I didn't have lesions in the brain from uh, multiple sclerosis Oh my goodness, what a scary deal to go through all the testing as well. Oh god, it was it was just a nightmare. And um, is there a point is there a point where a family doctor or the first doctor you see discounts what you're saying because they look at your record and see schizophrenia yeah. on it? Yes. And how yeah. do you handle that? Like that's got to be challenging enough or even in your own mind like if you're like is this another delusion of mine that I'm losing hearing in my ear? Right, exactly. Both are true. Both oh of my those goodness! Um, both of those things. You know, I was I was soft pedaled. I was not taken seriously in the urgent care place that I went, um, and I was um, not taken seriously in the emergency room. And uh, I actually two groups of people that hold positions of power that I really think need to be educated about people with mental illness are law enforcement and medical professionals, especially doctors. You yeah. know. Um, medical doctors, because it's really easy to say this guy's psychosomatic or uh, is a psychosomatic, right? Yep, right. Just because write it off. Just write we, it we off. You don't see any problems, you know, it's and, psychosomatic. And one of the first things it says about this kind of event is that it's a, a medical emergency and needs to be taken care of immediately because the sooner you get treatment, the sooner, the better your chances of it getting better. And uh, that was not done. And um, I have a lot of resentment about this because, um, you know, I know I wasn't taken seriously. And that was not, um, I wasn't taken seriously and that's not a delusion. Right. Uh, that's the truth of the matter. And um, that, that's stigma. 
that's discriminatory. And, and, you know, Sue Abner Holden from NAMI, Minnesota, as she said, uh, we're moving away from the term stigma and we're calling it discrimination, which is what it really is. Yeah. Um, and so that's been a major life adjustment. And uh, I suffered very, very severe depression this year because, you know, I thought the thing that I loved and held most dear uh, was completely gone. Uh, it's proven not to be. And um, I have adapted, but my journey of adaptation and um, sort of rewiring of the brain to this new circumstance is really not, it's not over because my brain, every time I play music, uh, the experience is quite different. You know, it's, um, it's, and it's not an external thing. It's how my brain is processing it. And uh, a way to think about it is half of my auditory processing center is shut down inside my brain. And so I'm relying on one ear. So, you know, there's all these, it's a scary thing and it's a depressing thing to know that you can't tell where sound is coming from. You don't know where a car is coming from when you hear it because you can't localize sound with one ear. You know, uh, you need to hear in stereo to be able to do that. And um, there's a really strong sense of social isolation because when you're in a, a crowded room full of people, it's very hard to focus on just a single conversation. And, and that kind of social isolation, it led to a very, very severe depression. And um, I, I'm pulling through it, but I, I've had to work really hard. And so it's been a challenging year. It's, yeah. so I think it's a uh, conversation is worth having about how medical diagnoses can have a profound effect on the mental health of someone. Oh, absolutely. Can you share with us uh, when you say that your depression was so difficult what were some of the symptoms that you had were dealing with in regards to your depression yeah i was suicidal um uh, i really seriously contemplated suicide every day because i thought what i loved most was gone and uh, even if it wasn't gone it was so different from what it was that uh, you know i was in i basically went through all the stages of grief right you know mm-hmm. uh because now i'm living with another major disability you know and it's a disability that directly affects my work, but not only my work, my, my life's passion. Um, you know, I've been playing music since I was four years old. And um, uh, I was exhausted. Uh, I'm still dealing with fatigue, but uh, I really was exhausted and uh, I did not want to get out of bed. There was just so many mornings when I woke up and I just I didn't want to get out of bed. I wanted to just stay in bed and sleep all day because, you know, sleeping, I could escape, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, sleep escape for me. It was a way to um, get rid of this nightmare. And I, I was really struggling with the tinnitus, you know, these phantom sounds in your ear, which are actually, I guess, you know, I've read about it. They're the same response uh, as phantom limb pain, but it's the auditory okay. version of it. You know, when it first happened, they put me on prednisone. So I'm having tinnitus. Uh, I'm hearing the in one ear. I'm hear, hearing the world through another ear, and I'm having auditory hallucinations. And it was just, wow. it was just horrific. Was and horrific. you stayed on your medications for your schizophrenia. And were you meeting with your doctor to say, "Hey, look, I'm I'm going through some serious depression now." Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, my therapist. You know, she called it, um, and she's a marvelous therapist. She's so great. She called it situational depression, you know, and um, 
you know, talk therapy has kind of been the key and uh, cognitive reframing. That's helped you through with your depression and your schizophrenia? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, uh-huh. has been uh, really helpful in coping with the tinnitus um, because I'm always going to hear these phantom sounds in my left ear the rest of my life, you know. Um, and you have to find a way to normalize it. You have to find a way to be okay with it. And you, so I kind of say I'm a, a musician, a mental health advocate, disability advocate now, because I've added another invisible disability to my life. And, you know, we have to find ways of accepting those things, which would otherwise be unacceptable. Right. 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 Because we have to ultimately, and I guess this is the maybe the, the primary point I'd like to make. We have to find a way to be okay. And we have to find a way of accepting that whatever may befall humanity could befall us. And I remember watching a program on PBS about Buddhism. And uh, the one person being interviewed said, everyone's going to get old. Everyone's going to get, well, not everyone gets old. Everyone's going to get sick. Some of us are going to get old. And all of us will die. And there will be suffering along the way. And what this philosophy is really about is finding a way to be okay with that. And we have to find ways to be okay with uh, the hand that we're dealt and make the best of the hand that we're dealt and find ways to adapt. And I think we have to find a way to be resilient, which in, in my estimation is just a sort of a more modern way of saying, I hate to be so blunt, but we have to be tough. Uh, we have to find a way to find, um, maybe tough isn't the right word, but find an inner source of strength that you know somehow you're going to carry through and you're going to move forward. Yeah, the word comes to mind, and, and I think you said it, resiliency. Resiliency, yeah. yeah. We have to find a way to be resilient, yeah. and we have to find a way to continue to move forward. And I think that's the, the way of dealing with depression with me. And actually, I want to move towards the, the feelings of hope and recovery. Yeah. When struggling with depression with my hearing loss, the way I pulled out of it was comedy. And I, I music, to begin, was so disturbing to listen to with one ear. It was so strange and disturbing that that had always been my coping mechanism. I had to find a new one. I had to adapt. And you know what it was? It was going on YouTube and watching old Saturday Night Live skits awesome. and just laughing my butt off. And uh, I just would laugh and laugh and laugh. And all of a sudden I felt like, man, I think I'm kind of getting better. And then it was this process of relearning how to hear, of setting a speaker like directly to my right, like perpendicular to my right ear and listening to music and trying to hear, okay, there's the guitar, there's the drums. Uh, okay, there are all those parts. I can hear all those parts with one ear. And adapting and like using an earplug in my bad ear. So I, I had to do that so I uh, could just focus on listening with my good ear, my right ear. And then, you know, I came up with the system of adaptation using earplugs, bizarrely, to like train my brain. And it was when I took the time to say, no, uh, okay, I've accepted that this has happened, but I have to find a way to move forward, you know, and uh, it hurt to play, but I knew it would hurt even more to not play music. 
Right. Um, and so I had to reframe how I thought about it. And, you know, like any sound going in my, my left ear would create this like distortion, like a broken speaker cone that was so ugly. And uh, so I started using these musicians earplugs and I would listen to music in the car, listen to music at home. I started playing gigs. Actually, to begin, I used this bizarre setup where I would run everyone into a soundboard and use headphones and listen through headphones as my monitors. And then I started using these earplugs and I, I had to cognitively reframe. Like if you think about it being exactly the way it was, you will always feel bad. But if you are grateful for what you can hear, and if there's no distortion in your left ear, there's no pain in that ear because any sound going into it was very painful and you can conceive of all the parts. That's a win, you know, and I had to figure out what, what was a win and how do you count successes? And I said, you're going to have to find a way to take pleasure in this somehow, or you won't keep doing it. And it's so important that you keep doing this, that you don't give up for so many reasons. It's your identity. It's your job. You know, other people have told you how much their music means to you. Um, I want to play music with my children. And I'd have to tell myself, like, okay, what can I take pleasure in? Oh, I can. I love the way the feeling of the rhythm of the bass and the drums today. Or I would say, I love the way my hands feel on the strings. Or I love the fact that I haven't given up. Or I love the fact that people are clapping for me and that they still take enjoyment and pleasure out of my music. So I had to be very conscious about what it was that I could take pleasure from and take gratification from instead of focusing on the negative aspects. I had to cognitively reframe how I felt about this situation. And it's consequently made me a far more compassionate person. It's made me a more humble person because I just realized any music that I created meant nothing to someone who was completely deaf, made no difference, you know? Right. So, so what source of ego should I have about being a musician? There's none. To, to some people, it means nothing. So I became more humble. I feel that I've become more compassionate. I feel that I've become more uh, dedicated. And uh, it makes me feel as long as I have one ear, uh, I want to make as much music as I can while I'm still alive. And, you know, I, I, I butted up against this feeling of mortality. I lost a piece of my body that's not coming back. You can't see it. Uh, but it's the equivalent of someone losing an eye or someone losing sensation, touch in a limb or someone losing sense of taste. Um, and, well, and, and um, I think it's even more critical in your situation because it's a part of your livelihood and who you are and who you identify with being a musician and it being such a critical part. Yes, exactly. And such a huge part of my recovery from mental illness too, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's been a process of, uh, of cognitive reframing and uh, neuroplasticity. And that's how I've, um, that's how I've dealt with depression this year. Um, that, that's and, an incredible story. I love and think it's such a valid, important point to reiterate the reframing, right? Because you easily could have gone down the rabbit hole of, I'm never going to play music like I did before. I lost, you know, hearing in my ear. This is the worst thing. I, you know, I'd rather be blind or anything, right? Yeah. But instead, yep. you shifted your mind to all of the positives that you still had and and now you know you're you're still playing your music brilliantly from what i hear from the conference <laughs> well you know um that's it you know we have to change our reference point and so much of it is changing uh and 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 this, these are issues of the brain right depression and schizophrenia and so bringing that piece of neuroplasticity into this of 
uh, creating those positive grooves, you know, uh, yep. maybe the, new the, pathways, the grooves of gratitude, right? You know, yeah. creating these pathways of gratitude in our mind. And, uh, you know, whenever there's something good, you know, I've suffered so much in the past year that whenever there's something really good, like I, I taste a, a wonderful meal, I just, I just savor it. You know, yeah. I just savor that good moment. Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> being with family members, you know, uh, just soaking up those moments with your parents or your children and just being grateful for this beautiful moment of, you know, me and dad watching the Simpsons laughing together, how beautiful that is. Or, you know, um, being out on the marsh duck hunting and, you know, uh, knowing that you've survived these trials and here you are watching the sunset with a river of, of ducks flying over you. And I, because the thing is most of life is a comedy. There's, you know, the, the concept of the Greek concept of comedy and tragedy, right? Um, most of life is a comedy, uh, but it's interspersed with these, what I would call punctuations or staccatos of, of, of tragedy. And we all experience them. It's part of the human experience. Um, and some of us more than others, you know, there's, there's people who have lived through just devastation in Syria or, or, or Bosnia or wherever in the world. And, and, and there are all of our, our personal sorrows of, of, um, of loss, of loss of a loved one or, or loss of identity, loss of, of, of uh, work, whatever it may be. We all experience these tragedies. And I think really the key is to when you're in those moments, experience them, but don't get stuck. Find a way to move forward and know that the wound that you've experienced will heal and it will always bear a scar. And those scars will be a badge of honor that you carry with you in your life. And, uh, and, and, and those badges of honor are, 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 are pieces that you can hold within yourself to know that you've moved forward. And that's a sense of pride, a sense of identity, uh, of, of self, of who you are and of your own resiliency and your own strength to continue to move forward in spite of this. And you have to carry those. We carry these things with you and, and know they're not light, but, um, it's, it's the grace uh, an integrity in which we carry those things with us that that makes for um for a for a life story for our yeah, life story absolutely um, and, and and ultimately i guess i'd like to just sort of end on this uh i feel like we are all authors of our book hmm. you know life presents us these materials and uh, every decision we make throughout a day is us writing a chapter in our in our life story and we can i think we have a choice uh if our story is going to be one of comedy or tragedy and if it's going to be one of uh of sorrow or triumph and um i i'm a believer in um life and it's very much a sink or swim uh situation and uh i've been presented a lot of challenges and uh thus far i've continued to choose to swim yeah, it's awesome. Part of your story that's so inspirational, too, is it It makes me think that I often tell people when you're working towards recovery or, or getting mentally fit, it involves time and effort. And you didn't just heal from your ear one day, but you tried the earplugs, you tried the headphones, you've 
tried the speaker sitting perpendicular to your ear and you've taken the time and put in such effort and huge efforts it sounds like in as well around the cognitive piece of being okay with it and knowing that you're you're gonna be okay and you are still gonna play music and you are still gonna live a a happy life with your wonderful family that's exactly right and um i if you talked to me last may i wasn't there but i'm but i'm here now and the thing is i think we all want to uh, you know, when I created this program, The Improvised Life, it was at a real high point in my uh, life. I had really rebuilt my career. Uh, I had had great success musically. I was at the top of my game musically. And uh, I sort of thought like I had written the book and it was all finished. But the thing is, uh, my story is not complete. None of our stories are complete until we take our last breath. And so uh, new chapters are unfolding. And so uh, the thing is, we have to wake up every day and write a new chapter. And um, that's, I guess, another way of, of, um, of saying wake up and do it a day at a time. Right, right. Wow, what an incredible story. Before we wrap up, Sam, I would love to ask you, I know you just gave a whole bunch of advice, actually, but I always like to end the show with a piece of advice that you could give to somebody who may be listening and struggling right now. And maybe it's somebody who did just receive a new diagnosis of schizophrenia. Maybe it's somebody struggling with depression. What's a a bit of advice you would give before we sign off here? One of the things that I always say to people with mental illness, and it's something that I've learned from experience, and uh, sometimes experiences are hard, but one of the things I would say is reach out for help and try to not, don't alienate yourself from those which could help you and be your allies. Reach out to others and realize that, that help does exist and, and, and question your own thinking and allow other people to question your thinking and consider their thoughts about it too. Because the most, one of the most tragic parts of mental illness is when people become alienated from those that could be a great support to them, be they family or friends. And so be open to that help and to those supports and take it seriously and take your recovery seriously and know that you get to be the author of your recovery and that it is possible. And that even with a dire diagnosis, you can still be happy. You can still lead a good life. Yeah, if awesome. recovery is recovery is real, it exists. Uh, there is great hope to be had. There really is great hope to be had. And and um, and the other thing is celebrate the small victories. Oh, absolutely. That's important along the way, isn't it? Just just rel- the good times. Just soak them in. Just yeah. soak them up. Awesome. Well, Sam, I want to thank you. Uh, I thank you for your advocacy. I mean, you have taken a platform, your music and your your performances, and turned it into a platform for you to advocate for those with mental illnesses. So I really, really appreciate that. And uh, I look forward. I'm going to be looking for you in the cities uh, so that I can uh, check out one of your shows as well. But thank you so much for your time, and thank you for your advocacy. Oh, my pleasure, and thank you for asking me. It's an honor. Absolutely. We'll make sure you stay healthy. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to 
to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.